0: Uh, Calvino's book, I spoke about Richard Lanham, who has written an absolutely uh, excellent book that you really uh, should look at, The Electronic Word, uh, and how these came to bear on some of the issues surrounding rare book librarianship, among other kinds. Uh, Terry was kind enough to tell me that I had done a very fine book review. Would I please do something else this time? I then proposed that what we really needed was a reading of Lucille, because... (laughs) uh, after having the, the, them up so much, uh, it really seemed appropriate. And I have here a copy in limp ooze, which I picked up at Ace Books in Culpepper for two fifty. And I'm prepared to give a reading from Lucille. Uh, there's actually some passages here where the um, tetramic, te, what was it, anapestic tetrameter uh, works to very good effect in uh, delineating character. But I don't think Terry wants me to do that, so I'll put that away. Uh, he told me what do you think this is the Browning Society and I'm under instructions from management to be light Uh, however I'm going to talk about uh, why there will be no special collections on the internet and in the network generally and I picked this out as a kind of heuristic topic which has a very simple answer in the first instance but I think leads to some interesting conclusions as you develop that answer So let's see where it leads. The simple and obvious truth is that there will be no special collections on the internet uh, because artifacts will not exist on the internet. Special collections are collections of artifacts. We used to call them books. Uh, Artifacts are objects. They're pieces. Uh, The definition of mass uh, is something that uh, has weight and occupies space. Books uh, occupy space and have weight. Uh, You can already see where I'm going with this. Uh, On the network, there uh, are not objects. Artifacts contain information, and I'm going to develop this idea uh, to some extent here to begin with. Uh, Information in the artifacts consists primarily of texts and graphics, as we have known it for most of the time until, say, pop-up books and sound recordings and so forth. But texts and graphics, and I'm going to focus mostly on texts, and let's leave graphics aside just for the moment to keep it simple. Graphics, uh, we used to call them pictures. they, they contain information of a textual kind, and information is the foundation of the collection, the point of the collection, if you will. Why do we have collections? It is to provide information. Artifacts have three values in libraries, really. Uh, I'm gonna reprise these three first and then go on and describe each of them somewhat more uh, extensively. First, artifacts provide information about their texts. Second, they provide information about publishing and reading and all that we call the history of the book. And third, they have aesthetic value. I'm speaking of artifacts now. Let's deal with these each in turn. The third first is easiest to dispose of, the aesthetic value. Occasionally it's great, most often it's routine. Uh, There is a range of values that we call aesthetic in looking at books and artifacts of this kind. Uh, There's the pleasure that we just get in holding and reading a well-made book, Aldine Octavo's Spiral Press books, uh, the Modern Library. Each of them has its own pleasure, uh, and you get involved in the niceties. The Library of America is wonderful, except too heavy and too tight, but in fact, it's a very attractive book. Uh, Some books give us little pleasure, oblong books, we all know not to design books like this, and coffee table books generally are not very pleasurable, they don't give aesthetics. Some books have a lot of non-informational beauty associated with them. The Book of Kells or Bruce Rogers lectern Bible comes to mind. But let's set aside the aesthetic value for the moment. Artifacts are primarily valuable because they provide information about their texts. Uh, I have some difficulty formulating this because I'm trying to make clear that the book is not the text. The book is not itself the information in the text, but it tends to embody the text. It contains that text. Uh, and to say that the artifact is valuable because it gives information about the text might be misleading, and I'm looking for a better formulation of this. Uh, it gives information about the text because this text is in the book, if you see what I mean. Uh, but there are other ways it gives information as well. Uh, the most important function is that it transmits it, it, it embodies the text. Uh, and we can say, I think, that in the interval between the oral tradition and the electronic age, the book is the medium of textual transmission, and I'm speaking, of course, of manuscripts as well. Inevitably, the medium also forms our sense of how the text is transmitted. Uh, All of that uh, Roger Chartier or Don McKenzie, Robert Darnton have taught us about how size and shape of books, typefaces, portability, the sense of permanence affects our uh, understanding of the text. These are important ways in which the artifact affects our understanding of text. Uh, Lo, all in silence, all in order stand, and mighty folios first, a lordly band. Then Corto's, their well-ordered ranks, maintain and light octavos fill a spacious plain. See yonder ranged in more frequented rows, the humbler band of duodecimos." (laughs) Uh, George Crabb. Don McKenzie has written on Congreve uh, about the changes in the way Congreve presented his material from Corto in his early uh, stage of uh, career to a folio edition in his late career, and has shown how this is uh, the presentation of Congreve's drama reflected and, in fact, uh, uh, interacted with a shift in the the way we see restoration in Georgian drama. Uh, The second value of artifacts is that they provide information about what we call the history of the book, Uh, evidence about publishing and therefore about authorship on the one hand and about the social organization of work on the other hand. Uh, It's evidence for the transmission of ideas. This book was made in this place at this time. It has this reader's name in it and was found in this other place at this later time. So, artifactual information is of use for what it tells us about the text or about the history of the book. And uh, this is my first provocative comment of, of several uh, directed to, such as Nicholas Pickwood and uh, Mir- uh, Miriam Foote. Uh, except at the margin, or for practitioners or, and enthusiasts, the artifactual information is of little interest in itself. Uh, the fundamental Use and interest that we have in this artifactual information is what it tells us about the text, the information that is carried forward, uh, or about the issues of uh, what we call the history of the book. The textual information support that we get uh, from issues of, of what kind of paper was used, how it's laid out, the collation, the page and sheet layout, uh, the binding issues, the printing history. Uh, This has been developed for us, and the most famous examples have to do with Shakespeare folios and how this actually transmits into a better understanding of the actual text we have before us, or should have had before us. Uh, The history of the book is supported with studies of typesetting, sequences of printing, uh, paper sources compared to locations of printers, uh, and the like. Uh, I'm going to go on here. But Terry has told me to be light, so I'm going to throw in a joke. You've all heard, or have you heard, the one about uh, what the Zen master said to the hot dog vendor make me one with everything. <laughs> Why am I emphasizing all this artifactual information? Just be serious now. Uh, all this artifactual information I'm talking about is to point out the contrast uh, and to point out the informational basis of library collections, of what we're collecting for. At the margin, there are these aesthetic issues. Uh, at the margin, there are a couple of us who are interested in bindings just because we like the way they come together. Uh, but the informational basis is fundamentally what we're after, certainly of special collections. And the picture changes radically in the electronic environment. Uh, the truism is to say that there are no artifacts on the network. Uh, information exists as recorded bits of information. It may exist on an artifact, but the artifact is wholly unimportant uh, in relation to the transmission of the text whether it's on a tape, a floppy disk, a hard disk, a magneto-optical disk, uh, a crystal, uh, who knows what. Doesn't matter. The the text uh, is the same at the point that we actually consume it, so to speak. It is not affected by that medium. Information is very easily copied. You think twice before putting a Gutenberg Bible on a Xerox machine. You don't need to think twice at all about copying any electronic text at all. Uh, And there are preservation implications associated with that copying. Uh, The asset of electronic information is also its liability. It is easily modified. This is a very great asset because we can, as we all know, develop texts and change them readily, and it will when we want to, but it is a liability because that means that there are ways in which things can change, uh, whether by accident or design, in ways that we don't want, and we have to be careful about that. There are preservation implications there that I'll get to in a minute. So, in a way, a phrase you could say is that there's nothing special about an electronic collection. There are no artifacts to provide or added value to the substantive information. There is no concept of rarity. The idea of multiple or single copies, uh, the idea of a single copy falls away. If you have one copy, you can have as many as you want. Uh, it doesn't, there's no sing- singularity of a version of something if it exists in electronic form. There's no concept of origin or priority in the sense of one document being the source object for another. One copy is just as good as any other identical copy. Uh, The copy of your manuscript on a floppy disk, assuming you don't change it in the intervening time, is just as good as your hard disk copy. If you give me a floppy disk copy, I can use that as the origin for what I use to read. I don't have to go back to your hard disk copy. There's no priority. There's no need for protection against use. Use will not damage an electronic work. The number of times you read something uh, has no effect on the, what you see on the screen. A, a medium may die, but if you've backed it up properly, you go to the, uh, your backup copy and make another one and use it till the medium dies. And another co- interesting thing that co- arises out of this is that there's no difference between important materials and unimportant materials on the network in any of these respects I've just described. Uh, the substance of the information has no effect on those uh, mechanical issues that I've just talked about. Concepts of preservation and protection still exist. Uh, they exist for any information object. Uh, object is jargon for what we used to call a text or uh, a slug of information, uh, except that computing people, and I think is a useful term, speak of objects. And it's a useful term for us. You might have a paragraph, you might have a paper, you might have an image. These are objects which we work with in our interactive electronic mode. We need to preserve these uh, and protect them. And to summarize very briefly some of those issues, uh, there are three modes of preservation which we now have to pay attention to in the electronic environment. Medium preservation, technology preservation, and intellectual preservation. Medium preservation is the very uh, basic issue of how do we keep the tape oxide from flaking off and if it does, what do we do about it? Uh, How do we keep the floppy disk? uh, from having that little spring cover broken off or keeping it uh, away from the magnets that might damage what's on it. Uh, That's the easiest kind of preservation to deal with, uh, mostly because preservation in that sense just means copy it to something else and go on from there and throw away the old one that's broken. It may cost money to do it on a mass scale, but it's technologically easy. Technology preservation is different. What do we do with the WordPerfect version 1 for CPM operating systems on eight-and-a-half-inch floppy disks, they exist, uh, when we have them in front of us and we want to read them. Uh, the famous anecdote is the 1960 census tapes, which there is only one tape drive in the world that can read them. That's in the Smithsonian, and it's broken. Uh, <laughs> It's a folk legend. The Census Bureau, it turns out, has been very assiduous, and they have transferred forward all of the 1960 census tapes. But that story tells you the kind of problem we're dealing with. Technology preservation has to be dealt with. And the uh, buzzword for what has to happen there is migration. Uh, For medium preservation, we refresh the information, copy it from tape to tape. For technology preservation, we migrate the information. That may mean changing it in substance. A file in WordPerfect 1 will look different from a file in WordPerfect 6, as you well know if you try to read it in WordPerfect 1 from your WordPerfect 6 version. But it's a migration forward of the substance. How do we be sure we've copied it and migrated it forward correctly? Different issue, different talk. Finally, there's intellectual preservation, uh, the issue of authenticity or what Clifford Lynch calls integrity of the information, and I think his word is right. Uh, How do I know that the document I'm looking at on my screen is the same one you referred me to last week in your footnote? How do I know it hasn't changed in between, either through failure of some kind or fraud, both of which happen on the network as they do everywhere else? These are preservation issues that now exist, uh, but they exist, once again, I remind you, for unimportant objects as well as for important objects. There's no distinction. You don't handle the important or the unimportant object any differently as a result. Collection decisions begin to be made a little differently in the electronic environment. Uh, The decision, and I'm taking the research library mode, the research library broadly considered, uh, the Yales, the Indianas, the Folgers, the Huntingtons, uh, not the Camden State Colleges here, the the broadly considered research library. A collection decision uh, is a decision in favor of, and here again some computing jargon, in favor of persistence. Uh, We decide to acquire or Let me come back to acquire in a minute. We decide to make available over a long period of time information that we want to persist. There is a lot of information out there on the net, which, as you know, in the first place, it doesn't deserve to persist, and we know that. But there's a lot that isn't going to persist, and there's some that should persist. Uh, The analogies to ephemera do arise here. Who's going to take care of some of this stuff? Uh, We don't know just yet. But persistence is something that's important in the research library environment. Remember the paradigm about librarianship that we all learned in library school. Those those were librarians. The rest of you can, this is where you learn something. Uh, The paradigm of acquiring information, organizing information, uh, providing information, and preserving information. Acquire, organize, provide, and preserve. Uh, In research libraries, this means providing it and preserving it for a long time drive at home, i like to remind you it's for periods of time longer than our human lives. Uh, we're not talking about six weeks or eight months. We're talking about longer than we will be around to assure its persistence. We have to set up systems for persistence. The change <coughs> in the paradigm, and there's only a slight change, but a significant one, is that we don't acquire information anymore. We make it available. We link to it. We indicate that it's in existence somewhere uh, in the electronic environment acquiring takes on new characteristics in this mode. And By the way, I want to introduce another terminological distinction that Paul Peters has made, and I think it's a useful one, and that's between digitized information and digital information. Uh, Digitizing is something that exists as an artifact. It may involve scanning the information, uh, keyboarding the information, a number of ways of making it electronic from what was in print or hard copy. Digital information is information that is created de novo in a digital form and is quite likely quite possibly not possible to put into any other form than electronic form. Examples might be uh, large databases, uh, the the human genome project, certain kinds of interactive computer games uh, and so forth. In the electronic environment the decision (coughs) to provide long-term access is analogous to the decision to acquire. It means making a commitment to long-term preservation. In this context, then, there's no difference between what would once have been special collections objects and other items. Uh, if we acquire, say, a text of a new history critical work, uh, all the activities that go on about that work are the same as if we had just acquired the electronic manuscript of, oh, name an author that you like, um, Robert Cougar, I don't, know. I don't like it. time for a joke Uh, (laughs) I ran into this the other day and I just can't resist telling everyone I meet about it the the, the words uh, Oscar Wilde is reputed to have said on his deathbed either that wallpaper goes or I do (laughs) so in this context what's the role of special collections on the network This is the heuristic part of the talk. I don't fully know, and I want to throw out a few teasers to you. These are things that I've tried to develop in the course of uh, working up this talk uh, to use what uh, probably ought to be a Virginia metaphor. Some of these may be hounds that won't hunt. Uh, Special collections will continue in its role of being the locus for the important artifact. This is obvious to all of us. It'll have an important role in placing digitized images of artifacts on the network and will have no special role in libraries in providing digital information. Special collections will place digitized forms of artifacts on the network for several reasons. To increase accessibility, both for pleasure and research, Uh, rather as an exhibit lets patrons see a Keats first edition or the Eliot manuscript of the Wasteland, so a digitized image can be placed online more or less permanently. Uh, This could be either, again, for the aesthetic values, for the amusement values, and for the real study values that this provides, uh, as exhibits do. Uh, Digitizing, in some cases, can actually improve access. Uh, I believe the most prominent case in point uh, is the Beowulf manuscript at the British Library. Uh, Certain kinds of scanning can bring out information that can be shown on the screen. Uh, David, uh, you check me on this. That are not easily visible to the naked eye uh, and that uh, can improve... The capabilities uh, for study that we had before uh, and making that available on the network uh, is clearly such a win-win situation. Network surrogates can assure preservation of objects. Uh, they can allow the studies of the materials without handling. Uh, obviously this, this I think is clear to, to most of you. Rather than having people come in and rummage through drawings, if the drawings are online, people can rummage through the drawings online, figure out what they really need to look at and go look at them. I th- I think We're all experienced with this. Microfilm is an example in the past. We've uh, had that uh, issue. There's a balance of stresses here. (coughs) Digitizing, at the moment, is still a relatively stressful operation for something that has uh, any kind of delicacy to it at all. Uh, Do you want to digitize it once with stress, or do you want to leave it in the vault and hope that it doesn't get looked at too often by people who are just browsing? Uh, The digitizing can reduce the travel needs of scholars. Uh, This, I think, is a real role of course, that can be provided. Uh, You can eliminate the need for the original entirely if the surrogate suits the purpose that the particular scholar has in mind. And at times, this can be the case. Uh, It can reduce the need for the original if the surrogates allow winnowing, uh, as I was just describing, going through masses of photographs and manuscripts to be sure to see which it is you really want. Uh, Surrogates can eliminate unnecessary travel. They can provide the fact of existence of a document before a scholar travels to the library simply to see if there's something there that's of use. And, it can al- and al- it digitizing can allow forms of study that are not otherwise possible. The scanning, I just spoke of, bringing things out. Uh, marked up texts of scholarly editions in SGML or other forms can allow computer manipulation of information that's digitized and testing of hypotheses. Uh, and documents can be compared even though they are geographically separated institutions. And you can look at them, of course, from a third location entirely. All of these digitized uses again raise the question of, who is the constituency for the rare book library? And I don't propose to answer that for you. Is it the local user or the scholarly community at large? For for special collections, there's always been tensions among local needs and local funding and distant users who don't come with funding. The network will heighten these tensions. But special collections will have no special role, no particular role, in research library collection of digital information. I'm consciously being provocative in asserting this, and I, would, I think it's true, but I would welcome evidence or inferences to the contrary. As I described above, the, the, there is no distinctive activity for a special collections department in the selection or organization or use or preservation of digital information. Everything that gets done is done across the board for all kinds of materials. Materials is the wrong word, all kinds of objects. The same activities take place for the long-term maintenance of the Berkeley finding aids or a digital textbook as would take place for preservation of the Human Genome Project or the hypertext novel by Robert Cooper. The implication, of course, is that special collections may, to some extent, become a museum of the book. Uh, And this is a role that we've talked about in the past, Uh, a role only partially mitigated by the digitization activities I've just described. Special collections can be seen as a bridge backward in time, a legacy system, so to speak, in computer jargon, rather than as a continuing repository of important documents of the human record. Alternative, alternatively, of course, and I prefer this, one could say that the entire research library will become a special collection dealing with digital information, preserving the digital human record for use into the indefinite future. This scenario could be called by us perhaps the scenario of if you can't beat them join them. In this view, there are some interesting implications for special collection staffing. The activities involved in presenting digitized information are very little different from those involved in digital preservation activities. Uh, Consider the activities going on on at Cornell and at Yale, where large scale, well, medium scale digitization uh, for preservation purposes is going on. Uh, Presenting that information (coughs) is very little different from presenting uh, digital information of all kinds, and the skills involved are very similar. Uh, One of the implications, though, is that the preservation function will once again be strongly linked to the special collections function as it used to be before the welcome expansion of preservation activities over the past 20 years. The considerations involved in selection of important digital works will be the only distinction between between what we now call special collections curators and research library bibliographers. Once the object is selected, whether it's the electronic working papers of a Nobel Prize winner or the next electronic novel by Danielle Steele, the library activities of cataloging, authentication, preservation, and presentation will be the same. The distinctive characteristic for the digital curator of special collections may thus be a special understanding of intellectual property issues and of how copyright will color the passing of ownership or license from a private party to the library. What we now think of as normal or trade materials will have their electronic analog in the routine acquisition of digital objects through standard purchase, lease, or license agreements. The digital curator, on the other hand, will sniff out particular digital objects of importance and will individually negotiate rights to them with their owner. Electronic copyright law may become an important hiring qualification in special collections. In the immortal words of John Dean, what an exciting prospect. (laughs) In this discussion, I've begged the question of what is an important digital work. In the artifactual environment, the concept is usually clear, although it changes. Our hard copy concept of importance is affected by changing views of culture exemplified, for example, by the rise in importance of gender studies, of popular culture, and ephemera. However, in a broad sense, we can say we know what is an important artifactual work when we see one, which is what allows the antiquarian book trade to exist. But what is an important digital work? My hypothesis so far has been that everything about research library activity involving digital works is the same except for the selection process. And the selection process is different only for important works. Perhaps what we will think of as important digital works will be those desirable digital objects for which the copyright issues are troublesome. They won't be any rarer than anything else, they won't be any more fragile, they won't be any more aesthetic, and they won't provide any material supporting evidence for the substance of their information. Saying that a digital work is important because it invokes the specialized skill of a digital copyright curator is not, of course, a very crisp or satisfactory working definition. Perhaps this too may be heuristically helpful in understanding why special collections as such won't really exist on the internet. I remain confident, however, that there will continue to be a role for special collections in the networked environment. I also think that uh, curatorial skills will remain important in research libraries. These are the skills for understanding of what is important in the literature, for knowing who are the important players, for asserting what a given library should take responsibility for, and for negotiating with private parties Terry, in his Malkin lecture a couple of years ago, has described the role of special collections as leading the march to the dumpster. Perhaps its role instead is to lead the march to the network. And on the way, special collections librarians may be leading themselves back into the mainstream of the research library. Thank you.